Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our online and radio audiences. You can visit us at www.commonwealthclub.org to see all of our upcoming events. Tonight, it's my great pleasure to welcome back Professor Levinson, uh, Sanford Levinson, from the University of Texas Austin Law School. Uh, he's been here two or three times already over the last couple of years. Excellent talks every time. And uh, this time, he's going to be speaking about his book, Written in Stone. This is the 20th anniversary edition. The first edition focused maybe more on the bringing down of monuments, of statues and everything in the Soviet Union, which was taking place as they changed their culture. But since then, there's been a lot of uh, pressure in the United States to take down statues for various different reasons. So he's updated it, and there's a whole new layer of meaning to address, something that obviously our future, I think, is going to keep having to address for a long time. So thank you very much for coming back, Sandy. Welcome. Well, I'm absolutely delighted to be here and grateful to those of you who came out on this really beautiful, beautiful day. Um, This is my third time at the Commonwealth Club, for which I am certainly grateful. The earlier times were for a book that I published in 2012 called Framed, America's 51 Constitutions and the Crisis of Governance. And then last year, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I were here to talk about a book called Fault Lines in the Constitution, ostensibly written for teenagers, but I describe it as written for children of all ages. Um, Also about certain problems in the Constitution. This evening's book is written in stone, um, Public Monuments and Changing Societies, but there is a certain connection, at least in my mind. The first two books, as well as other writings of mine, probe the problem of how we come to terms with certain very real divisions in our society. Do we have a political system? Do we have a constitution that is actually adequate to resolve the kinds of divisions, the polarization within American society? And on the two previous occasions, the basic argument was it's not clear. Um, I am a critic of the Constitution, in part because I think it makes it inordinately difficult to resolve divisive political issues. This book, written in stone, does not directly concern the Constitution, uh, although there is some discussion of constitutional law that I'll be delighted to address in Uh, questions afterward. Rather, it focuses on a particularly divisive kind of issue that has become more so in the 20 years since I wrote the original book. This was the original edition. If I used PowerPoint, which I don't, then you would see this in a larger version. Um, This was published in 1998. The important thing to note is not only that it's quite literally smaller than this new edition, but the cover has um, the Texas State Capitol, and quite literally the first thing that you see as you walk up Congress Avenue from the south to the Capitol, which is a statue to the Confederate war dead, and this is Jefferson Davis. Um, And the theme of the book was the use that 
all political regimes going back to ancient Egypt. There is nothing new under the sun with regard to the attempt by those with political power to use public space, particularly what in the book, and I borrow this uh, from other writers, particularly sacred public space, indeed think of state capitals or um, um, city halls, or for that matter, certain sorts of cemeteries or certain public squares. Think of Union Square in San Francisco, and I'll be talking about San Francisco quite a bit um, later in these remarks. Uh, but I say go back to the ancient pharaohs um, um, or the um, use of public space in Rome or uh, in London, really quite literally any place you can think of. Those with power are always very careful to try to capture public space and public names in order to reinforce the legitimacy of the regime. Uh, Now, what is most interesting to me um, as a sometime historian, I sometimes say that I'm not a real historian, but I sometimes play one on TV, Uh, but historians are primarily interested in change um, as well as stasis. And so what I find particularly interesting and what constituted the subtitle of both this version and the new edition, and one of the reasons that I asked my wife to pass out um, this um, um, this advertisement that the Duke University Press was kind enough to prepare is that it has the cover of the 20th anniversary edition. But the subtitle of both is Public Monuments and Changing Societies. So what really grasps my interest, and George alludes to this in 1998 especially, (coughs) is what happens to public space when regimes change. And I use the word regimes in a slightly technical sense. I'm not referring simply to elections and replacement of one political party by another, though that sometimes can lead to interesting consequences. We would not have the Ronald Reagan National Airport um, in Washington were it not for the um, uh, fact that Republicans controlled the White House and Congress in uh, in the early 2000s. Um, But what I'm, I'm interested in more dramatic change than that So the allusion to what the older among us can still remember as the Soviet Union is absolutely crucial. And what exemplified some of those changes is exactly that statues came down. Indeed, you don't have to think about Moscow and the Soviet Union. Uh, uh, Some of us might even remember the Hungarian Revolution of 1956, where the most dramatic moment was the tearing down of the statue of Stalin. And um, this is a recurrent motif when genuine transformations are occurring. So one of the soundbite descriptions I have given of my book is whether it's Stalinist to tear down statues of Stalin. Because, and that's a serious question, 
because what one often hears, <laughs> especially, I might say, around historians, is that there is something sacred about the past and whatever occurred in the past. So that if there is a statue of Stalin or fill in the blank with any other figure, then we owe a duty to history to respect what was done in the past and leave things as they were, even if, to be sure, we might reevaluate the people being memorialized. The clearest illustration would be the Pharaonic monuments um, in Luxor. Uh, um, which my wife and I have been privileged uh, to have seen in C2. There is no doubt that the pharaohs were tyrants who do not deserve to be memorialized if one is talking about the values they were committed to. But there is also no doubt that it would be an act of vandalism of the worst sort to tear down the pharaonic monuments merely because they were tyrants, that they have aesthetic value. Among other things, they're gigantic and can't really be appreciated unless you see them in their remarkable size. (laughs) But there is a certain statute of limitations. After 4,000 years, you kind of forget the concrete reality of the people being memorialized and think in terms of the overall civilization so that when the Taliban uh, destroyed some Buddhist statues, one did not need to have any special sympathy with Buddhism in order to view that as vandalism. So that's one side of the debate. A certain sort of whatever exists has a right to perpetuation. The other side of the coin is not only that history is the constant realization of change, what Joseph Schumpeter called creative destruction, which involves um, um, indeed the destruction of great buildings, of great sites, of open spaces, of all sorts of things in order to create new civilizations based on the railroad or whatever. But also, as regime change takes place, the creative destruction for better and maybe for worse of the kinds of symbols that exemplified the ancient regime, and I use that term advisedly, that is now being displaced by a new regime. So, the new edition, uh, and I invite you to look at, uh, it's not quite a brochure because it's only one one page, um, of the book, which is available... The new edition begins, or on the cover, this is a very dramatic picture of Robert E. Lee being displaced from Lee's circle in New Orleans. Now, I should say another thing about the 20th anniversary edition. 
When I originally proposed the idea to my editor at the Duke University Press, and I must say it's a minor miracle these days that my editor today is the same person who edited the original um, edition after 20 years. She's still there. But I proposed the 20th anniversary edition probably about two years ago, um, actually three years ago, since it's already 2019. And I suggested that maybe <coughs> I would send her in about 5,000 words around August 1st, 2016, and the new edition would be published in the early spring of 2017. And the press was certainly amenable to that, and that was the original notion. <coughs> well, this new edition not only has a quite distinctively different cover, but it's also 20,000 words longer. And the last of the twenty of the 20,000 words was not added until quite literally the day it was going to final publication in June or July of 2017. And one of the reasons that Miriam, my editor, and I quite unjokingly talk about already thinking of a 25th anniversary edition in 2023 is because quite literally, and not only hyperbolically, almost every day brings a new illustration of the problem that I want to address. Uh, just last week, for example, there was a very, very interesting piece in the Washington Post about the Woodrow Wilson High School in the District of Columbia. Um, I'll be talking further about Woodrow Wilson later today. But it was pointed out that Woodrow Wilson, who is now widely conceded to be probably the most racist American president uh, since Andrew Johnson um, in um, 1865, um, is a complex and controversial figure. I'll be talking about Princeton University, which has a very special relationship to Wilson. But Woodrow Wilson High School isn't Princeton University. And it has now become, I think, not only one of the most prominent high schools in Washington, but has especially an African-American constituency. And so the brunt of the column is that for African-American students, it's really quite irrelevant that he won the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, rather, what they are most aware of is that he was quite significantly racist. And should they continue to be, from their perspective, subjected to get it to attending and getting a diploma from a school named after Woodrow Wilson. They say that's just last week. Um, and there are many, many more examples that have arisen since this book went to press. The new edition um, begins with a fairly short preface before an 18,000-word afterward. But the new preface begins with what I presume almost all of us remember as a chief symbolic moment of the Iraq War of 2003. That is the conquest of Baghdad and the almost literally immediate tearing down of the statue of Saddam Hussein. 
um, which was a significant feature of the Baghdad landscape. Now, one of the reasons I begin with that in the new edition is that I literally do not recall a single American, or for that matter, anyone anywhere else, who described that as vandalism. Rather, it was viewed as altogether proper to signify the displacement of a tyrant. And there's no doubt that Saddam Hussein was a tyrant. Now, the destruction was quite carefully managed by the conquering Americans in that although American troops in fact, played an important role in tearing it down. It's also true that Iraqis played a role in the destruction, just as Hungarians did in 1956. And one can think of many other revolutions across the world where locals indeed lead the way into literally tearing down the monuments. So literally nobody suggested that it was vandalism or political correctness or whatever kind of negative term you might want to throw, Stalinist, to tear down the statue of Saddam Hussein. And so what interested me 20 years ago and what interests me now is whether one can come up with any systematic arguments as to when it is proper, or to use a phrase beloved to law professors, necessary and proper, to revise the public landscape by engaging in creative destruction, out with the old and with the new, and when, on the other hand, it is necessary and proper to join ranks with historic preservationists and others who say, well, it's certainly a good thing to write books offering different perspectives on Woodrow Wilson or whoever, but that should not change the public landscape or the namings of buildings. Now, the book, the book's covers focus as do most of the pages on concrete, quite literally, concrete or marble statuary. Um, Should they remain in place, be destroyed, or the more moderate version is simply displaced? Because I doubt that this statue of Robert E. Lee is going to be destroyed It would not be surprising if, like a statue of Jefferson Davis at the University of Texas, which was moved a couple of years ago, it is taken from a place of honor in the central campus and moved to a museum where it can be presented in a very, very different context than being in a place of honor in sacred space. And one of the things that you can do with monuments, <laughs> besides destroying them, is to move them. And in the movement, in the shift from the sacralization 
in a place of true honor and moving instead to a museum that is devoted to what we think of as a more academic, and I don't use that term pejoratively, but a more academic meaning a somewhat more distanced, nuanced, we would even like to think objective view of the past, you can say, well, here is how the subject was presented, and the subject can include Stalin or Lenin, or for that matter, Adolf Hitler, who always emerges in debates of this sort, um, that it is valuable to know how they were presented. One of the things I uh, write about at some length in the original edition that is certainly present in the uh, new edition, because the new edition, in fact, is everything that was in the first edition, plus 20,000 new words and quite a few new pictures. And one of the things I discuss uh, is a place called Statue Park outside of Budapest. I think it's about 15 kilometers or so outside of Budapest. That's really fascinating because it includes a whole bunch of Soviet-era monuments that once occupied the sacred space in downtown Budapest. And Monument Park is now, at least when I saw it um, in the early 90s, it was basically in the middle of nowhere. Now, given that Budapest, I suspect, has expanded since then, it may not simply look these days like a farm in the middle of nowhere. You take a bus out to it, and you see these statues, but obviously they have a very, very different meaning. They register very differently. Perhaps some old-line communists will take their children to see the statues and say, you know, this is this used to be in downtown Budapest. But I would assume that other parents, if they take their kids there, will say, you know, this once constituted what Budapest was about in some serious way, and thank goodness it no longer does, but you get a sense in looking at some of these grandiose Soviet-era statues what that culture was like. Um, So this is what can be said in general about monuments and monumentalization and when they should remain in place and when they should be moved and, in particular, as I say, whether there are any general rules by which one can say, okay, keep this one in place, no, move that one. And the fact is, I don't believe there are general rules. I think that it is no coincidence that the uh, committee reports that I discuss at length in the new afterward from, say, New York City, where the mayor appointed a special committee to study this issue, where a primary example was the giant statue of Christopher Columbus in Columbus Circle. Um, And you'll not be surprised to know that Christopher Columbus has become a very controversial figure, just as Junipero Serra is a very controversial figure now in California, where he wasn't before. Uh, There are also other statues that the committee looked at, statue of 
of Theodore Roosevelt in front of the Museum of Natural History, um, a statue of Marion Sims, the so-called father of American gynecology, um, who in fact performed many of his important experiments on unanesthetized slave women, and what should be done with these. Uh, The statue of Sims has in fact been moved from uh, I think Fifth Avenue and Central Park to his uh, where he's buried in either the Bronx or Brooklyn. Uh, the other statues remain where they were. Uh, but there's a very interesting committee report trying to explain this. And particularly with regard to Columbus, it's very clear what the political resonance of this that Christopher Columbus isn't just any figure. He is an important figure in Italian-American history. Um, the importance of Columbus and others, many of these monuments, not surprisingly, are of ethnic heroes. The fact that they were put up when they were put up was a sign of greater inclusion in American life. Um, but now that they are subject to critique, they evoke all the political sorts of controversies you might um, expect. A lot of the book, and both the old cover and the new cover, focus on Confederate monuments, which certainly have been treated a great deal in many, many stories. Um, many monuments have been moved. Some have been destroyed um, um, spontaneously, as it were. This happened, for example, with Silent Sam at University of North Carolina. It happened with a statue to a Confederate war soldier in Durham. I went to college at Duke. Um, and all of these raise very, very interesting questions. Uh, I'll be glad to address in the uh, discussion time uh, the differences that I would draw between leaders whom I'm quite happy to displace from places of public honor and ordinary soldiers. Um, I happen to be an admirer of Eugene Debs, and I generally believe that Debs was correct when he said that it is ruling classes who initiate wars and the working class who are called upon to fight them. And so I tend not to get into high dudgeon about memorials to ordinary people who fought for terrible causes. Um, And in fact, one of the things I discuss in the new edition is the fact that there is a cemetery in France to the German war dead. Just as some of you, I'm sure, have seen the uh, American cemetery in Normandy, which may very well be the most moving sight I have ever seen in my life. Um, I chose not to go to the German cemetery But I find it intriguing that there is a German cemetery and there is a description kind of the purpose of it. And basically it says these are youngsters who were conscripted into fighting for a cause they may or may not have believed in. And they are entitled to a certain resting in peace. Now, I don't have that feeling, as I say, toward 
leaders, and perhaps not even to officers. So one of the things I discussed in the first edition that remains in the second edition is Ronald Reagan's visit to Bitburg, um, which was a key symbolic moment in his first term. Um, I had no objection in terms of um, treating our now ally Germany by going to a museum that included graves of ordinary German war dead. I did object to his perhaps implicitly honoring members of the SS who were buried there. But this comes up over and over again in debates about who is to be honored. Um, This particular uh, statue focuses on Jefferson Davis, but as is often the case in the South, it purports to be in honor of the Confederate war dead. And as I say, I don't treat all of the Confederate war dead, or for that matter, all of the Nazi war dead as equal. Um, But this is, these are among the difficulties that one gets into. Now, I also discuss more in the new edition than in the original edition, the issue of buildings and streets. Because with statues, one can say you can destroy them or you can move them. That's kind of easy. Buildings are more difficult. Almost nobody ever suggests destroying a building because it's named after somebody you don't like. Nor can a building be moved, nor would it make sense to move a building for that reason. So you're presented much, much more directly with the issue of do you keep the name or not? This is Woodrow Wilson High. But this is also Calhoun College at Yale or the Woodrow Wilson School of International Affairs or Woodrow Wilson College at uh, Princeton or the Julian Carr Building, which I literally just discovered when I was at Duke talking about this book literally two weeks ago. Uh, Julian Carr was a notable benefactor of Duke University, who was also a raving racist. And so the building is, in fact, being renamed. Those of you in the Bay Area, I suspect, are more familiar with the story of Bolt Hall. Um, It has been, I forget Bolt's first name, I think it was Thomas, but I'm not sure. The important thing is that it has recently been realized um, that he was ravingly anti-Chinese in the time in the 19th century when this was the key issue in California politics. And although Bolt Hall had changed its name basically for branding reasons, I think about a decade ago, more recently, I think they have made a more concerted effort to get rid of the name entirely rather than simply to refer to the school as University of California at Berkeley School of Law. Uh, I went to Stanford for law school. Uh, Stanford, uh, Stanford's offices used to be located on Junipero Serra Way. They are now located on Jane Stanford Way because of the new view of Junipero Serra and the Spanish um, uh, invasion or whatever word wants 
one wants to use with uh, in California. So one of the things I did in this most recent visit to San Francisco was to look at the map uh, rather simply than Google. And as I'm sure that most of you are aware, all of you are aware, significant streets in California are named after Andrew Jackson, James K. Polk, um, Zachary Taylor, but more importantly, Millard Fillmore, Franklin Pierce, and James Buchanan, as well as Henry Clay um, and um, Daniel Webster. And I even discovered that there's a John Calhoun Terrace in San Francisco. Now, these aren't just any people or any prominent public figures in American history, which they clearly are. You cannot understand American history of that period without paying attention to each and every one of these, maybe including even Franklin Pierce, but certainly the others. A colleague of mine at the University of Texas, H.W. Rands, has just published a brand new book about the three titans of the Senate, Henry Clay, John Calhoun, and Daniel Webster. So why is Fillmore Street one of the major streets in San Francisco? I know it primarily because of Bill Graham. Um, and Cynthia and I were lucky enough actually to hear Janis Joplin um, at um, Fillmore West in 1968 or 1969 or so. But, of course, it's named after Millard Fillmore. Millard Fillmore signed the bill that admitted California to the Union. That's a good reason for honoring Millard Fillmore. But he also signed the second Fugitive Slave Act, which, if anything, was more cruel and despicable even than the first Fugitive Slave Act of 1793. For, among other things, um, the magistrates enforcing the Fugitive Slave Act got $10 if they held that the alleged fugitive slave was, in fact, a fugitive slave. And they got only $5 if they said that the alleged fugitive was being wrongly described. It was tyrannical under anybody's understanding. Daniel Webster had been denounced by Ralph Waldo Emerson, and I think by Henry David Thoreau, both, for having betrayed the commitments of a lifetime by supporting the so-called Compromise of 1850, a central point of the Compromise being with slavery. And, of course, that goes back to the original Constitution. We never would have had a Constitution in 1787 without collaboration with slave owners. Um, And Henry Clay, the great compromiser, was a slave owner himself um, um, and um, advocated uh, the compromise. John Calhoun was the most vigorous defender of slavery um, in Congress over a 30-year period and of secession. So, John Calhoun is kind of the easiest case to talk about because until this past year, one of Yale's residential colleges was named after John Calhoun, who graduated from Yale in 1804, received an honorary degree, um, I think in 1819 or so, um, and then Calhoun College was named after him in 1931. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. 
Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. As I've already suggested, John Calhoun isn't just any old American figure. And more and more Yale students, and not only students, objected to honoring John Calhoun. The president appointed a committee, as presidents tend to do. Um, uh, Universities tend to provide both opportunity and motive to discuss the kinds of issues I'm interested in, because universities are constantly seeking new money, And one of the things that universities often do is to name buildings or maybe even put up a statue after distinguished alums or distinguished benefactors. Um, So the president of Yale appointed a committee. It was headed by a friend of mine, John Fabian Witt, um, a prize-winning author of mid-19th century American law. And they came to the conclusion that... Calhoun should go. And the rationale was not only that he had committed his career to reinforcing slavery and defended slavery as a so-called positive good and not merely as an evil that we had to tolerate until some magic day in the future when slavery disappeared on its own. But also, and this is not irrelevant, because Calhoun has almost nothing to do with the actual institutional history of Yale College or Yale University. He went there. Big deal. He got an honorary degree. That's a little bigger of a deal, but it's not much. Uh, You could write a 500-page history of Yale without ever mentioning Calhoun or mentioning him only as one of the distinguished, you know, well-known public figures who went to Yale. And he also exemplifies the fact that Yale is a somewhat more Southern in orientation school than Harvard. This becomes interesting because Harvard, uh, Harvard's Memorial Hall to this day memorializes nobody who fought for the Confederacy whereas Yale, in its walls, memorializing alums who died between 1861 and 1865, treats those who died for the Confederacy equal with those who died fighting for the Union. Uh, But Calhoun didn't leave any money to Yale. He plays no role in the institutional history of Yale. And so the committee said he should go. And in fact, Calhoun College is now named, it is the first uh, college to be named after a woman. Um, I think Grace, I would say Grace Hopper, but I might be wrong on the name. The first woman to get a PhD from Yale. And apparently one of the real fundamental contributors to computers, computerization. Who knew, given the way the history is usually taught, that uh, this hitherto fairly obscure woman is a central figure in the development of modern high tech. So Calhoun, in a sense, is easy. He was committed 
very forthrightly to what all of us would regard as despicable views. And he really had nothing to do with Yale other than being an alum for two years. Woodrow Wilson is a much harder case because you literally cannot understand the history of Princeton University without taking Wilson into account. He was president of Princeton. He transformed Princeton. He captures the fact that people are much more complicated than we would like to think, uh, that he was a thoroughgoing racist. If you look at racism in terms of whites and African-Americans, but he also appointed Jews and Catholics to the faculty of Princeton. As president, he appointed not only the most despicable justice in our history, probably James McReynolds, who was so anti-Semitic that he refused to sit for the official portrait next to Louis Brandeis. But Brandeis was, in fact, appointed by Wilson. So, you know, people are more complicated. And Princeton decided quite reasonably, one might certainly say, that it just would be unfaithful to the history of their own school to rename the Woodrow Wilson School of International Affairs, given also that you cannot understand international relations, not only in the 20th century, but in the 21st century, without paying attention to Woodrow Wilson. My own view is that Woodrow Wilson is the most important single figure in the 20th and 21st centuries in terms of the fundamental importance of the Wilsonian notion, which I assure you I have very, very mixed feelings about, of popular self-determination, which is both inspiring and a recipe for endless war. Um, but say you literally can't understand our history without paying a lot of attention to Wilson. He's a far more important historical figure, it turns out, than Lenin. But putting that to one side, I think one can readily understand why Princeton wasn't willing just to tear up its own institutional history. What they have done instead is to say that they will present more nuanced views of Woodrow Wilson, that there will be more plaques by his statues or by the names of buildings. But these are real issues. So I come back to San Francisco. Um, We're staying within a block of Union Square. Union Square, again, just isn't any old place. Um, It is designed to memorialize those who gave their uh, lives in a war that killed 750,000 people to preserve, at least to preserve the Union, and as a contingent matter, to end slavery. That is the statue that one sees in Union Square. One does not see a statue to either of these people. On the other hand, you literally can't walk around San Francisco without seeing or, you know, walking on what are in fact memorials to people who were on the wrong side of this very, very basic divide in our culture. Now, it's not up to me to tell you exactly what you should do. 
with Henry Clay and Daniel Webster, John Calhoun, etc. But I do know that these issues are not without their presence in the Bay Area, if one thinks of monuments to Junipero Serra, um, and um, the, the fact that Osaka, Japan, broke its sister city's relationship with San Francisco because San Francisco had the affrontery to put up a statue to the Korean comfort women who served as sexual slaves during World War II. Um, Monuments provoke response. And so one can look all over San Francisco to find examples of how history is woven into the warp and woof of civic architecture, civic design, street namings and the like. Blessed are cities like New York that have numbered streets and numbered avenues that, you know, it's going to be a while before anybody gets angry about 7th Avenue or 42nd Street. But if, of course, this is also common, cities take every opportunity to honor people who at time T are viewed as worth honoring uh, in airport names and streets, putting up actual statues, then it shouldn't be surprising that in times of social change, people will start asking both, why did you do this? It turns out, for example, that I think it's Robert O'Hare was the son of a member of the Chicago City Council who died in World War II. So that explains why most of us, I suspect, have had the experience of flying to O'Hare Airport and Chicago politics being what they are, there is apparently no move to change the name because nobody really cares about O'Hare. But one can imagine other airports like, for example, the Daniel F. Milan Airport uh, that used to welcome people to Cape Town that you would not wish to keep after 1994 and the transition of South Africa from an apartheid society, just as southern Rhodesia was changed to Zimbabwe and Salisbury was changed to Harare. So that broadly is what led me not only to write this original book, but also to add 20,000 new words to this and a new cover to this copy and why it is that I quite seriously uh, talk with my editor already about what the 25th anniversary edition should confront because for better and maybe for worse, I am absolutely confident that these problems, whether one thinks of statuary or building names, or streets, they're not going to go away. It is simply a question of whether people with the motive and opportunity will direct our attention to this. And for, as I've already suggested, for better or worse, it is often college students who 
become aware of such issues and create campaigns that may call on the rest of us to justify why we stick with the status quo. Uh, as I always do, I've gone on too long, but I hope we have some time for discussion. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And uh, although we did not talk about it ahead of time, I was very glad that you brought up the pharaohs because I uh, I wore this Egyptian tie uh, <laughs> uh, on purpose because I knew that they had written in stone. And I figured if nobody noticed, it, at least a faded green the day after St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> Uh, and one other one other comment. Uh, you, you mentioned that New York is safe, uh, but there is one building in New York uh, with numbers uh, that is a problem. That's 666 6th yes, yes. Avenue. Uh, exactly. A very big office building. And there, it wasn't even necessary. It could have been named 620 or 64, but it was 666 6th Avenue. Guess who owns it? The Kushners. Yes, yes. exactly. <laughs> so um, so that said, let's go to, to uh, questions uh, for uh, Professor Levinson. Thank you, Professor Levinson. This was a really wonderful and interesting conversation tonight. Um, one of the things that happened recently that I think is relevant to this conversation is on International Women's Day, there was a demonstration in the city of Chicago where a group of women got dressed up and did makeup so they would look like statues. Mm -hmm. And they went around the city, and the point was to illustrate that there are no statues of women in the entire city of Chicago. To be frank, I don't even know if there's statues of women in San Francisco, Oakland, Seattle, Los Angeles. I just don't know for a fact. I mean, I'm sure there are, but um, not as many as there are of men and just, you know, nationwide. So this leads me to kind of a quasi overarching question of female representation and statuary and naming. But more than that, what if we were to build as opposed to destroy does that help ameliorate the problem? Because I'm of the mind that it would. Yep. And while preserving history. Thank you. All right. It's a terrific, terrific question and observation. Um, there's been a fair amount of coverage of New York City in this regard, because it is a notorious truth that males, particularly white males, are way overrepresented. I think there's a statue of Eleanor Roosevelt somewhere in Central Park. But it was pointed out this year, which is the 100th anniversary um, of um, the uh, amendment giving women or guaranteeing women the right to vote, that the history of suffrage, two things can be said. First of all, there is not adequate commemoration of it in the public square. Secondly, most of the standard histories of women's suffrage focus on white women. And there are two problems with this. First of all, you can't understand the actual politics of women's suffrage without realizing that there were a lot of African-American women who fought for the right to vote. Secondly, and more embarrassingly, and this touches on the difficulties of honoring people and the degree to which you're willing to accept not only feet of clay, but perhaps, you know, full torsos of clay. Some very, very prominent proponents of women's suffrage oppose the 14th and 15th Amendment 
because they focused on the rights of African Americans. This is clearest with the 15th Amendment. It protected black men, or it purported to protect black men from not being able to vote. Section 2 of the 14th Amendment very explicitly suggested that states could continue to exclude black women and white women from voting, even if, at least in theory, they would be punished if they didn't allow black men to vote. So you can understand why white supporters of suffrage in 1868 and 1870 might not be big fans of the 14th and 15th Amendment. But as you might also expect, some of the language they used to explain their objections wasn't simply objection to their being excluded, but gave rather invidious descriptions of the black men who were being allowed to vote. So that's one point. But you're also making one other extraordinarily interesting suggestion, that one can imagine opening up public space, particularly if we're talking about statues. You know, kind of there's always room for one more. So one of the things I talk about in the new edition, and there's a picture of it, in fact, two pictures of it, is a quite striking memorial to, or about, I should say, the history of African Americans in Texas. So the statue of Jefferson Davis continues to dominate the landscape as you walk up to the Capitol. But to the left, there's a quite impressive monument to Texas African-Americans. Similarly, on the state capitol grounds in South Carolina, where there was a huge controversy about flying the Confederate flag, and the Confederate flag wasn't taken down until after the slaughter in Charleston several years ago. So there's no longer the Confederate flag flying over the state Capitol or on an independent flagpole in front of the state capitol, there are still statues to a bunch of Confederate heroes, and I have pictures of a couple of them, but there's also a quite impressive monument to civil rights heroes. So that is one strategy. When I presented this book at the Texas Book Festival, Last November, the co-panelist was the person who had designed the monument in Austin. And in fact, he's designed, I think, maybe literally about 80 other monuments on African-American history. He's the most most prominent designer in the country. And so the central question is whether the Capitol ground should be viewed as a form of separate but equal that those who want to valorize the lost cause get their statue and the fact that it continues to have pride of place 
And those who want to valorize an alternative history now have their statue. Or whether, at least at times, you have to choose. So that even if you want to have a more complex, pluralistic way of presenting, one of the things I discussed in the first edition, because I'm absolutely fascinated by it, is what is now the Little Bighorn National Monument in Montana. It used to be the George Armstrong Custer National Monument. Now, if you go to it, and it's well worth going to, you see three monuments. You see a monument to Custer. You see a monument to the Sioux, who, from the conventional perspective, massacred the, quote, American troops under George Custer. But you also see a monument to the Crows, who were, in fact, allied with the United States against the Sioux, because it's just mistaken to believe that all Native Americans are alike. It is mistaken to believe that the natural thing to do in 1776 was to support American secession from the British Empire. Not only were there lots of white loyalists who most of us are kind of aware about, aware of, though we don't see monuments to them. But a lot of blacks, especially fleeing black slaves, supported His Majesty's government because the secessionist movement was led by slaveholders, George Washington. Native American tribes, some of them supported the secessionists, some of them supported the British Empire, And all of these things complexify history. But you're absolutely right that on some occasions you can add. But with regard, say, to John Calhoun College, it wasn't viewed as adequate to name a brand new college, because I think that Yale was actually building some new colleges, to say, okay, we'll name the new college after the first woman to get a PhD. Rather, they gave her Calhoun College because it was viewed as just no longer appropriate to continue honoring John Calhoun. But you're absolutely right that this issue is one that comes up all across the country. And as I say, I'm most aware of this in, in New York City. So right here in Palo Alto, we have had two uh, schools named after prominent Stanford administrators who just happened to be administrators during the period when um, eugenics was mm-hmm. in, uh, an important new field. And so we just went through a very painful period in the in the city history of renaming those schools to other people. And it's even more interesting is that one of the schools they wanted to name after a, a, a wonderful Japanese-American um, uh, civil rights activist, but he happened to have the same exact name as, a, as an infamous kamikaze Japanese <laughs> pilot, and therefore he's not going to do it. They're not going to do that. Yeah. So my question is, we sort of didn't say much about this, 
But what could we have said? <laughs> what could we have done? I mean, this is what keeps me absolutely fascinated in this topic and why I am already thinking of the 25th anniversary edition. I didn't know of this, but this is not a huge surprise that these kinds of controversies would arise and arise on things like naming school buildings. One of the things I do talk about is some fascinating research done by a political scientist that fewer and fewer new schools are being named after American political figures. So that, for example, when the Thomas Jefferson Elementary School was finally torn down either in Fayetteville or Little Rock, Arkansas, because you know it was built in the 1920s and just had to be redone, one might have thought that the new school would be named after either William Jefferson Clinton or William Fulbright. But instead, it's named after, I think, the Snowy Owl. The most common high school name in the state of Florida these days is Manatee. Um, And you can figure out why. Not only with regard to, say, John Calhoun, is the historical record fairly complete so that, you know, anybody suggesting John Calhoun high really has a lot of explaining to do. Um, But we also are well aware, and your story about eugenics is just perfect, that historians bring new facts to bear and or culture changes. So, you know, Steve Wynn had given a lot of money to the University of Pennsylvania. And then it developed, not that he made the money through gambling, that was fine, (laughs) but that he had a history, apparently, of sexual harassment, which wasn't fine. So that Penn gave it back. Ivan Boski contributed $9 million to Princeton in return, I think, for the Boski, either a building or the school of something or other. And then it was discovered they had been guilty of insider trading, and Princeton gave it back. I think he demanded the money back, not only did Princeton offer, but I think he said, yes, I want it back. But one of the things we discover is that you never know what you're going to discover about people. Bill Cosby is, I mean, not only whatever you think of him when he was, you know, Daddy Huxtable or an I Spy, etc., but there is no doubt that he was a major philanthropist. There's also no doubt that over the last five or eight years, we've learned decidedly more unattractive things about Bill Cosby. So how does that add up? If you have named a program after him, if you have a portrait of him gracing the Ed School at one of the places he attended and contributed handsomely to, um... 
I don't have an easy answer to this, um, but I'm delighted to hear of the example because I think it just captures, I mean, do you assess people by what is most admirable in their lives? So I'm willing to give George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, basic passes in spite of the fact that they were slave owners. Though, when New Orleans decided long enough ago, so that this came up in the first edition of the book, that no public school in New Orleans should be named after a slave owner, that included Washington and Jefferson. And I can understand that when you're talking about educating the very young, how exactly do you say, well, yes, this person symbolically owned and in many cases sold down the river your ancestors, but you should understand he also did some very fine things. As adults, maybe we can process these complexities. I'm not sure what we should expect kids to process. Yeah, thank you. I'm a, I'm a preservationist at heart. <laughs> so seeing the statues torn down um, always makes me second guess. Are you aware of situations where people have been able to add interpretation, uh, help the public, future generations understand what the statue meant to others and so forth that have been successful and have maybe precluded just tearing them down? The honest answer is that I'm not really sure in part because what might appear to be successful at one point may later appear to be an effort simply to paint over some difficulties that weren't adequately faced. I do discuss in the first edition the history of a monument, of a different monument in New Orleans. New Orleans is a very rich source of materials for anybody interested in this topic. Um, It's a monument in behalf of the so-called White League. And I also always point out that it's very appropriately named. It was a group that led an armed rebellion against the Reconstruction government in 1874 that was, in fact, successfully repressed by the Reconstruction government. In 1791, sorry, in 1891, this monument was put up at the foot of Canal Street in New Orleans. It included the names of the brave men in the White League who had given their life to restore our government to the good people of Louisiana. As you might imagine, there was no mention of those who had lost their lives fighting for the Reconstruction government. During the New Deal, there was kind of further elaboration, but the theme was still, this was the struggle to restore our government 
to the good people of the state as against the scalawags and carpetbaggers from outside. Needless to say, this did not survive the shift of political power uh, in New Orleans, first to white mayors elected with black support after the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and then to black mayors. So the monument was sandblasted. And in fact, it's, it's worth reading because from my perspective, it has real overtones of George Orwell. So in the 1980s and 1990s, the official message that these are the heroes who died to restore Louisiana to its people, that goes. It's now replaced with, in honor of those Americans on both sides of the conflict who died in the Battle of Liberty Place. And so it now includes the names of the members of the Metropolitan Police Force, as well as the names of those in the White League. And then there's a further message, a conflict of the past that to teach us lessons for the future. Now, let me say, I have no idea what that means. Um, I don't know if the suggestion really is it doesn't really matter whether you were fighting in behalf of the Reconstruction government or the white racists who were fighting to overthrow it. They're both, as our president said with regard to those who marched in Charlottesville, there were fine people on both sides or whether at some level you pick and choose. Now, I like the Little Bighorn solution. And Patricia Limerick, who's a distinguished historian at Colorado, posed the idea that at places like Little Bighorn, there should be contestation spaces so that you can read the the narrative of the Custerites, the narrative of the Sioux, the narrative of the Crow, and then go at one another. You know, one hopes with civility, but nonetheless really engage in the kinds of argument that those who teach history hope to generate in their students. But you know, frankly, I don't think that's the message that this achieves. Now, it turns out that when New Orleans was rebuilding downtown, including for those who you have been in New Orleans, the new aquarium, the new riverside place, this monument was moved from its place at the foot of Canal Street to behind the Weston Hotel. Now, the reason it was moved there is because there's historical preservation law that says that monuments that are older than whatever it is, 75 years or 100 years, can't be moved from kind of their general location. So what would make sense, frankly, for me, would be to move this monument 
to the Museum of New Orleans history and really have it presented in all of its complexity as to what it teaches you about the history of New Orleans. Now, I'm embarrassed to say I'm not sure whether it's still behind the Westin. I know that it hasn't been returned to the foot of Canal Street. So it's just there. So my own feeling is that if you can complexify the history by putting up more plaques and offering alternative readings, that certainly could be the way to go. But I do think that there are certainly occasions where the proper response is to move them from their place of honor in front of a state capitol into a museum, and maybe even on occasion just to destroy them, Uh, especially if we have multiple monuments. It's a good idea to have one monument or a dozen monuments throughout the old Soviet Union. One doesn't need 10,000 monuments of Lenin or of Stalin and or of you know the confederate dead but i think these are really difficult issues thank you very very much and just one last note about new orleans uh, and what they've what they've tried to do I was there just 2 years ago and they uh, there are several plantations uh, that try to reconstruct us but there's one called the whitney plantation which has, uh, just after, I think, 2003, turned it into a history of slavery and done a very good job of it. And maybe to your point about the, the, the preservationists and what will happen over time, at the other ones like Jefferson Davis's home in Mississippi and a few other places, uh, the audience was all white and older. And at the Whitney Museum, you went there, half of uh, the people were African-Americans that were going to the museum. And so I think, I think uh, if you don't get complex, if you don't move forward and you, you have this old thing, um, hopefully you will become a little like the Flat Earth Society. Still existing <laughs> long after uh, it should, uh, but only, only a few, few people uh, are, are still interested. So thank you very much uh, thank again you. for a great lecture, Professor Levinson. And thank you for coming. So ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 117th year of enlightened discussion.